Sometimes, as a historian, you come across moments where you know, you just know, that there is more going on than the official records of the time say. Sometimes you get a real sense that, behind the scenes, so to speak, there is extraordinary developments happening, genuinely pivotal moments that will change the course of future events taking place, but the official records don't always let on. In the decade of the 1020s in England, we run slap bang into the most intense of any of these eras. England was ruled by the Danish-born king, Knut, conqueror, dynast, would-be emperor. He had, in the first few years of his reign, utterly rewritten the basis of English politics and had consolidated power around himself. He was also a man who seemed to have clear issues with London, the focus of this podcast. Now, over the next few years, according to the primary historical document written during his reign, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, we get a rather mundane series of entries. They're quiet, almost sedate. It presents an England where, sleepily, almost accidentally, Canute's power just seems to organically grow and expand. Yet, if you take on board what was being said in other documents, being written at the time and other documents being written in Scandinavia and across Europe and up in Scotland and in Ireland, oh, suddenly we get a very different picture. Something much more exciting and intense seems to be going on. In fact, the only truth we can ascertain from those sedate English records is that Canute and London remained hostile to one another. Extremely hostile. London was untrusted, had a permanent garrison located near to it, and was clearly somewhere Canute, well, he just had issues with it ongoing. And yet, paradoxically, it was the richest part of the richest region of his vast new kingdom. It was a place Canute kept returning to and would base himself in again and again. And London, while it never had much love towards Canute in the early part of his reign, was also to profit from the success of this man and his emerging empire. London was to become richer and was to change irrevocably during his rule. And so this chapter focuses on this weird status and this equally obscure era, where London and Canute enter the shadows of historical uncertainty, where things like a massive influx of foreigners into the city are lost in those shadows, this umbra. And along with that, it's the story of how London was to profit from being the disliked not-quite-a-capital of the not-quite-an-empire that arose in the shades of this era and eventually led to one of the most ridiculous robberies in the history of the city. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'd like to welcome you to Chapter 36 of the Story of London, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Relics. So we're looking at the reign of King Canute, the Danish invader who had taken over England in 1016 and was now, as our story starts in 1020, coming up to about the fifth year on the throne. And we have a problem. 
Allow me to summarize what the problem is concerning Canute and explain the difficulties we have in trying to tell the story of his impact upon London during this era. Canute's reign was without doubt one of the most complicated periods in English history. Think about it, of course it was going to be. Here is a young warlord who has conquered a foreign country. He's having to pacify the recently defeated peoples, deal with the anger and resentment of nobles who supported the losing side, have to deal with his Scandinavian allies who had their own agendas and needs and wants, and had to deal with the fact that he'd just exploited the weakness of England from within the maelstrom of Scandinavia, but recognised that if he could do it, someone else could do the exact same thing to him. Within a few years, this young man would be trying to take over Denmark, secure its borders with the Germans, while dealing with rival states such as Norway and Sweden, and very soon after that, he'd be trying to subjugate Norway as well, all the time while trying to pacify England still. And while all this was going on, we think he was at war with Wales and Scotland at the same time. To manage this would have required quick thinking detailed strategy, huge amounts of intrigue, and copious amounts of politicking. Alas, however, our principal record, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, is remarkably sparse on any details during the 1020s. And we think we know why. It's the general consensus of most scholars of this era that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle kind of had a policy of not saying much when Canute's reign was geopolitically unstable. I mean, if the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was being mostly composed during the reign of Canute, as some postulate, then the detailed, painfully detailed examination of the failings of the previous regime, the court of Ethelred, would make sense. And trust me, they go into extreme amounts of details about the gossip, the intrigues, the interpersonal fallings out, and that was fine. That was the old regime. But you want to write about the new and current regime? Oh no, don't do that. And so the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle stays silent. As such, we get hints of what was happening, but not much. We have to reconstruct events based on what we know from other sources. And added to that, this is a story with many moving parts. There is so much going on at the same time. We lose any sense of certainty. And all of this is my way of apologising to you, the listener. Once again, I'm going to offer a brutally simplistic summary of the events that took place over the next few years. Literally, everything I'm about to say is kind of like a bullet point, but to each one of these, you could write a whole book upon it, and indeed, in some cases, people did. This is the background to the world London faced during these few years. So, firstly, while Canute had, during the years previously, consolidated power around himself, his reign wasn't always stable. In fact, we don't think it was often stable. There are references to events and clues that suggest Canute faced rebellion and sedition quite a lot more than the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle would lead us to believe. This was often happening very close to home, from amidst his most closest allies. And the most significant rebellion 
seems to have come in the form of one of his most trusted advisors, Thorkill the Tall. There is much speculation as to why Thorkill, the Earl of East Anglia, turned against Canute. Some said the trouble started when Canute travelled to Denmark to press his claim to the throne there because he'd left Thorkill in charge of England. Thorkill was de facto king on behalf of Canute for a few months. Now, during that time he was in charge, there was this endless rumours of a scandal involving Thorkill and his new wife, suggesting that his new wife had murdered Thorkill's firstborn son and Thorkill was going along with it. Added to this, quite a few have suggested that the new wife was none other than the widow of Edmund Ironsides, which sends out a bit of a political message, don't you think? Whatever is the case, and we don't know for sure, we do know that after Canute returned to England, there is some kind of disturbance, and Thorkill was exiled, only to end up in Denmark. And eventually, Thorkill reconciles with Canute, or Canute is forced to reconcile with the powerful Jarl, and Thorkill basically becomes the Jarl of Denmark for a while, before eventually, apparently, being killed, supposedly by an angry mob of Danes who just disliked him. This rebellion, or attempted rebellion by Thorkill, must have shaken Canute to the core. He was still trying to pacify England after all. We get an idea of just how precarious his regime was when in 1020, Canute and the then still loyal Thorkill and the Archbishop of York, who was one of the few high-ranking bishops who supported Canute, had to dedicate a church in Assendon on the site of the battle to the late Edmund Ironsides. Why is Canute dedicating a brand new church to the man he beat in battle? Well, it was a PR exercise designed to appease the peoples who have reason to believe had just rebelled against Canute over in Dorset. He was trying to win hearts and minds. The story of Thorkill reminds us that even amidst his most trusted advisors, Canute's control of England was tenuous and could slip at any time. In truth, Canute could only rule England if he had a body of supporters from England who would help him. In our modern age, we would call such people collaborators, men and women who would make profit from the new regime and whose fortunes were inextricably linked to the fate of the new regime. And the poster child for this group of people was a man called Godwin. The son of a pirate called Brithnoth, Godwin had been Canute's loyal follower and aide during his conquest and had eventually been rewarded with the title of the Earl of Western Wessex. In the early part of his rule, Canute had very smartly decided to rule the old kingdom of Wessex himself, maintaining control over this vital central nervous system region of the English state. Godwin had proven himself so loyal that Canute eventually gave him the west of Wessex to run. The maybe recently rebellious region around Dorset? It makes sense. What Canute probably didn't realise was that in the era before Alfred the Great, Western Wessex was usually the territory given to the heir apparent of the main kingdom of Wessex to run as a subordinate sub-kingdom 
That kind of nuance would have been lost on Canute as an outsider, which is why he needed his collaborators to help maintain his state. And they came in all types, ranging from his powerful wife, Queen Emma, to minor Anglo-Saxon nobility who find themselves now on the lists of king's charters elevated as witnesses to their monarch. And leading them all was Godwin. In time, Canute came to trust him so much that he made Godwin the Earl of all of Wessex. He gave him the most important part of England to run and it went even beyond that. In all the trips abroad Canute was to make, and he was to make many over the next few years, Godwin was most often left in charge of the whole of England. So, for example, the residents of London, life during the reign of Canute sometimes had this hostile Danish king in charge who gazed on them with utter suspicion, but then just as often had Godwin, who was an English lad and didn't seem to have borne the same resentment towards him, and London actually liked Godwin because of this. So keep that in mind. And Canute was to spend a lot of time outside England. Uh, if you look at the period from 1019 to 1023, which we're talking about now, he was only in England for one full year, which was 1021. Otherwise, he was having to travel. Now, being an absentee king in England at the time would have been hard enough, but being an absentee king in England with all that was going on would have been impossible without a body of supporters and collaborators who needed you to remain in power so they could remain in power. And even with that, Canute still had so much going against him. We are fairly sure that with a few exceptions, such as the Archbishop of York, almost the entire English clergy was hostile towards Canute. I mean, in the last chapter, I went over the confiscations of land he'd inflicted upon the bishops of London for their support of the old regime. The bishops of England had been loyal to the House of Wessex for decades. Why should they like this invader? But in November 1020, Canute got a break. The Archbishop of Canterbury died and he could place a chosen collaborator in the bishopric. And this is how a man called Ethelnot became the Archbishop of Canterbury. And Canute lavished him with gifts and rewards and incentives to make good with the king. So, Canute now at least had the Archbishops of Canterbury and York on his side. This was a huge help for him going forward. Meanwhile, while he was running around trying to hold power in England, Canute was also trying to gain more power elsewhere. As we said last chapter, his brother Harold had died and the throne of Denmark was vacant and Harold had left no children and had indeed died young, so the next in line was his younger brother, Canute. But the question is, why did Canute go for it? I mean, it's a legitimate question. Canute seems to have had his hands full just trying to rule England. And this has led to several historians to openly wonder why Canute, who was having to go all out just to retain control of England, would suddenly try and rule a snake pit like the Kingdom of Denmark. Understand, part of the reason the Scandinavian kingdoms were so dangerous was they were basically like England had been a couple of centuries earlier. They were divided, they were fractious, there was very little central authority, and the regional lords seemed to be able to wield extreme amounts of power. 
Denmark was the most centralised of them all, having had a few generations of the Gormson dynasty consolidating control. Norway was the next along developmentally, where nominally at least since Harald Fairhair, there'd been someone in charge, while Sweden at this time was the nation-state equivalent of four ducks inside a trench coat. It was divided, lacked almost any central authority, and was a pretty wild place. So why, oh why, would Canute want to take over there? Some historians tell us he did it because he was a Gormson. Denmark was his homeland, this was his legacy, and of course he's going to take it. Others, perhaps more cynically, have pointed out that Denmark was becoming more organised, and if run properly, could have become a very profitable cash cow for Canute to milk. I mean, several of the Danish islands were still controlled by Viking bands, and apparently they were able to operate and raid with permission and after paying tribute to the Danish kings. I mean, that would be a big incentive to Canute. Added to all of this, there's also the fact that maybe Canute was being simply ambitious. He had shown his ambition and ruthlessness in his ability to take over to England, and frankly, since he had a claim on the throne, why not take it? And so he did, for whatever reason. And Canute's initial takeover demonstrates how, on paper at least, this was to be an easy get for him. We know that Canute had a permanent garrison of 40 ships filled with his best troops located near London to keep an eye on the city. But when he heard his brother King Harold had died, Canute sailed to Denmark to take the throne with just nine ships. He was not expecting a fight when he sailed over. He was expecting a procession. Of course, back when he took the throne of Denmark, Canute was able to leave Thorkill in charge of England, and everything seemed to be fine. But it was while he was away that he got word that Thorkill was maybe up to shenanigans, and that all eventually led to Thorkill being exiled. you got to understand, contemporary accounts at the time said you could sail between Denmark and England over three days if the weather was good, which suggests a week at most if the weather was a bit bad. Canute could keep an eye on things in England, and clearly did have a little flock of English stool pigeons keeping you updated with what Thorkill was doing while he was away, probably led by Godwin. Yet Canute had a reality problem that stared him in the face and simply was unavoidable. If he was King of England, he needed to be in England. The longer he spent away from the place, the more chance he had of someone playing silly buggers and trying to usurp the rule. Meanwhile, Denmark was even worse. To rule Denmark, he needed to be in Denmark. Yet he could not clearly do both. He had a dilemma. Now we'd seen that Canute's preferred tactic in England was to establish the Jarls, the Earls of England, people who would rule big regions of his nation on his behalf, and they would have free reign to kind of do whatever they wanted, provided they didn't upset the apple cart like Thorkill did, or provided they weren't untrustworthy douchebags like Edric Strayona of Mercia. Yeah. So what Canute needed was someone to rule Denmark on his behalf, and he had the ideal candidate, his son, Hatha Canute, the offspring of him and his new trophy wife, Queen Emma of Normandy. The issue with this, Hatha Canute was four or five years old, way too young to run Denmark. Canute wanted his son on the throne, but with a small cabal of Danish collaborators to help him keep it. 
And this is where he finds himself kind of making peace with the newly exiled Thorkill the Tall. The Arl would help Harker Gnut rule Denmark in Cute's name, and it doesn't sound like Gnut had much choice in this issue. Still, Thorkill died, and in his place emerged a Danish noble called Jarl Ulf. Ulf's brother had been given lands in England during the early 1020s, and we think that Canute was buttering up Ulf and his family so he would run Denmark as a region of Hartha Canute on behalf of Canute. Added to all of this, Ulf was married to Canute's sister, but we also think that Canute had objected to that marriage. The whole thing sounds really messy, really complicated all based on interpersonal relations where nothing is ever written down and that sounds right up Canute Street, really. And probably explains why the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is so terse during this era. The whole thing seemed to work in Canute's head. How on earth do you record that down? And with that in mind, we have a perfect example of the clash between what was written in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and what perhaps was actually going on in the year 1023, and an incident that intimately involved London. You've got to remember, London at this time was a place Canute distrusted, seriously distrusted, and possibly disliked. We'd seen in the last chapter how he'd clipped the wings of London wherever he could in the years leading up to turn 20. He'd find it a veritable fortune. He'd seen lands of the bishops of London. He had a permanent garrison now based over in Southwark to keep a lid on it. And in the year 1023, he saw another opportunity to send London a very clear message. So that year's entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says the following. Quote, this year, King Canute in London, in St. Paul's Minster, gave full leave to Archbishop Aethelnoth, Bishop Brithwine, and all God's servants that were there with them, that they may take from the grave the Archbishop St. Elphage. And they did so, on the sixth day before the Ides of June, and the illustrious King and the Archbishop and the diocesan bishops, and the earls, and very many others, both clergy and laity, carried by ship his holy corpse over the Thames to Southwark, unquote. Sounds sedate, does it not? The king asked if the Archbishop of Canterbury could move the relics of a saint from London to Southwark, and then eventually take them to Canterbury, where they would be interned there. However, a few years later, a monk based in Canterbury, a man called Osborne, wrote an account of what he says actually took place. And this account, it was a doozy. So what follows generally sounds like the plot of one of those London heist movies, you know, a Guy Ritchie special, ill full of crime and comedy. It's that outrageous and that wild. In fact, I'm going to show my adoration of the likes of movies like Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels or Snatch by describing what Osborne wrote as if I was a character in one of Guy Ritchie's movies. Imagine yourself in a bar in South London and one of the characters in one of those movies was trying to explain to you what went down. It's that much of a wild story. And please remember, no matter how unbelievable everything I'm going to say sounds, 
Everything what follows is what Osborne of Canterbury said happened 1,000 years ago. So, right, setup is simple. It's 10.23. Can you, big cheese, back in England after having a little bit of kerfuffle over in Denmark, all cushy. But he swings back to London and he gets instantly annoyed. Mad ting. London gets right on his wick. Place is always making money, like you choke an elephant on there, what? And one of the places making money and over fist, St. Paul's Church. Know why? Church has got itself a bunch of dead saints in there. Dead saints is important, mate. See, for your average English peasant, what with amusement parks about a thousand years away from being invented, there isn't much to do if you're looking for a few days break, you know? But what you could do was take a little mini pilgrimage, visit a big old church, sing a few kumbaya, say a dozen Hail Marys, and get yourself a sweet little blessing. It's not long, bro, you get me? Now, the best places to do this were places that had the relics of some saint in them. People love a bit of saint on saint action, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's one thing to last the Lord Almighty to bless you to save you from eternal damnation, but everybody knows if you get one of the saints to put in a word for you, that means the big guy's more willing to listen, yeah? Stands to reason. And then you see, the biggest saint on the market at this time was Saint Alphage. Ah, oh, you remember Saint Alphage? He was the Archbishop of Canterbury a few years ago and had been captured by none other than the Yom's Vikings led by Thorkiel the Tor. And they had held him hostage for a year, you know, trying to build up a decent ransom for him. He was like bare profit, you get me? Only Alphage was having none of that. He insisted no one pay a penny for him, ever. Sheer rhubarbs of the man. Eventually, the Yom's Vikings demanded Elif's a ban on the ransom, but Alphage was having none of it. So they killed him. Not great, but you know, it's the Yom's Vikings. The man damn a scary man. Anyway, Alphage was dead, killed and martyred as a decent Christian. And his body had been taken back to London and buried in St. Paul's Cathedral. I mentioned that a couple of chapters ago. And they'd been staying there ever since. And back then, well, the Danes kept turning up in England like a rash on a baby's ass. Folks were bound to want to ask a particular saint to put in a quiet word with the Almighty for a bit of relief from them, were they not? And who better than Alphage, right? makes sense but now we cut to 1023 Canute a Dane and he's in charge but there are still a lot of folks going to pray to Saint Alphage still like on a daily and it could be because he's a new saint and it's cool but it also could be I don't know some living ember of national resistance towards Danish occupation either way he was popular and he got a lot of traffic now all these people going to Saint Paul's they're not just getting on their hands and knees and asking for a blessing now, are they? Ah, now. They're spending money on drink and food in London. They're making contributions to the local churches. They're buying goods from London merchants. See, a good saint was a money maker. And this is what London had. And that annoyed Canute. Annoyed him a lot. So, Canute's having a bath. Uh, don't ask me why he's having a bath when this happened. That's just how it goes down. And coming to visit him is a new Archbishop of Canterbury, Athelmont. And can you, when he hears this, he leaps out of the bath and... Oh, look, look, I'm going to quote the source material here. Quote, he rose up from his ablutions without delay and wrapping merely a cloak around his naked body, he placed his feet in plain sandals and thus quickly made his way to the Archbishop, unquote. Now, I'm not saying anything, bruv, but that's a weird thing to mention, you know? This account was written by a monk from Canterbury. I'm not saying this monk was focusing on some weird stuff, but it's a bit booky, isn't it? Anyway, 
Anyway, can you? Sounds like he's in flip-flops and a bathrobe, and he asked the new Archbishop if he wanted the remains of St. Alphage over in Canterbury. I mean, Alphage used to be based in Canterbury, didn't he? Stands to reason he should be buried there. Now, doing that would not so much allow Canute kill a couple of birds with one stone. He could stick a shotgun into a bird box, is what he could do. First, it showed London he was a top boy. Second, he could get in with his new Archbishop of Canterbury. And third, he could stop Alphage being this kind of like anti-regime figure. It was sweet, but Aethelnoth probably told him what the issue was. Not even the Archbishop of Canterbury could just like order the Bishop of London to hand over the relics. Bishops had rights. Now, if the relics were to somehow get to Canterbury, allow it, sweet as your mother's tea. But the issue was, London wasn't exactly going to give away a highly profitable bunch of sacred relics. Now, were they? Sir Canute had to get the bloody things out of St. Paul's. So he had to think, look the Archbishop in the eye, and said something along the lines of, put the kettle on Ethelnoth, me and the boys have got this. Now, it's one thing to stage a little bit of taxation, but stealing saints' relics out of the main church of a hostile city like London is going to require a crew. Luckily, he had just that, and now began one of the maddest robberies in the history of London. So, first team he had were a bunch of hench lads, the all-scales of Canute's personal guard. Big boys, not always the brightest, but good in a fight. And these he got to wait just outside the city. Then he got another team to go guard London Bridge. Now Canute had a fleet of ships based over on the south bank of the river. So he orders the crew of a Viking longship to be all armed and ready to go on standby. They were the getaway. And last he needs some boys to go steal the body. But even if he was king, according to that source, he wanted to do it himself. So it ended up being just him, the archbishops, and two monks who were the Archbishop's mandem from Canterbury. Why Canute wasn't bringing a dozen of his boys with him, no one knows. Maybe for the bants. Anyway, with all these in place, Canute sets his big plan into action. First, he gets his all scouts to start making a fuss. Start attacking one of the gates, preferably one the other side of the city from the church. Big noise, start hitting the gates with axes or whatever, make it seem like a bunch of rampant Vikings were back. The residents of London, the London Fjord, this is their ends. They need to defend London. Whole city would jump. Blokes everywhere waking up, shouting, getting the neighbours. Like you don't have no phones, right? So you're just shouting and stuff to get the alarm. Husbands would hear this, kiss their wives a hurry goodbye, grab a spear and race to the gate. Got to defend the city, don't they? Eventually, the bishop would get word there was trouble. And being as we like the big noise in London, he'd eventually get off his regal ass and make his way over to all the noise. And that when everybody's looking in one direction, is when Kinu and his team would strike. They crossed the river on that boat and they were out of it like crap out of a goose's arse, straight up to St. Paul's. Mind you, church had a wall round it, part of the city known as Paulsbury, so I've got to ask if they had to shimmy over the bloody thing. And since this account hasn't said Canute was now dressed up in ninja bling to like do the robbery, he could still be in robes with flip-flops on. Hard to tell, really. Anyway, Eventually, they go straight to the tomb of St. Alphage. Just grab the relics, right? Nah. See, it was a problem. Alphage was sealed up tighter than a virgin in a convent. Boys tried to get it, but they couldn't. Time started ticking. The stone over the tomb looked like it needed a team of oxen to even shift it. The archbishop, he starts bricking it. Quote, the idea is ridiculous, unquote, says Ethelnoth. Quote, it must be contemplated at another time with other forces, unquote. 
But the king, oh, he's as cool as a magnum, you know what I mean? He says, quote, It will be very clear, Holy Father, that the holy man himself wishes to go off with us if he makes it possible of his own that which is impossible for men. For a difficulty always manages to produce a miracle. Let your holiness therefore prostrate himself in prayer to God. Let your monks approach with confidence to open the doors of the tomb. I shall take the role of doorkeeper. Unquote. So picture it. Big freaking tomb, all sealed up, tighter than an axe chuff. Two sweaty monks having to try and break in. Archbishop of Canterbury face down on the stones, praying to God and the dead saint to give him a sign and let them in. And King Canute, probably in a bathrobe and flip-flops, stood at the back of the door, keeping an eye out. Mad ting. Canute was probably getting into a bit of a sweat, but then one of the two monks, quote, tore up the iron chandelabrum which stood on the spot and achieved a break in the upper structure which had been firmly attached to the wall, unquote. That's right, he grabbed this big metal thing with way too many candles on it. He lifted it and started banging down on the tomb. Must have made a hell of a racket. But what can you do? You can't afford to get caught doing this. But now sooner had they made the hole, then luckily the whole structure fell in on itself. Which to Canute, that's a miracle. Bates. Quote, the king and archbishop, struck dumb with admiration, rushed up and with tears in their eyes, looked inside, unquote. Apparently the body of the saint was totally undecayed in the 11 years since his death. And Canute exclaims, quote, Most holy father, sweeter than all delight, most blessed father, more precious than all the treasures of the world. Have pity on this sinner of the king, lest either the first indignity or the later cruelty unjustly perpetuated on you by my kinsmen against justice and goodness should stand to my charge, unquote. Which is a nice speech and all, but can you? Mate, we're trying to do a robbery. You're only supposed to blow the bloody tomb doors off, not get all Shakespeare on us. Move, you twat. Now, according to this version, the four lads covered the bodies with a shroud they just happened to bring, know what I mean? But one of the monks, seeing a part of the body remained uncovered, runs to a nearby altar and nicks the altar cloth to use as another shroud. But he left half a pound of gold to pay for it, because he's a monk, and he obviously doesn't do theft. Apart from, you know, stealing the whole body like. But anyway, finally Canute and the boys make a break for it. But next problem, a break-in made noise. The distraction at the gates was only going to last for so long. Eventually, someone would have got wind of what's going down. Any second, the Fjord of London could turn up, and that was a whole separate pickle. In fact, it was an entirely different gherkin, do you know what I mean? Canute had to act fast. Now, technically, the best way out of London would have been to go from St. Paul's down to Billingsgate. There, he could have had a long ship ready to go. It's a deep water port, easy access quayside, sweet. Only if they're going to do that, that meant Canute and the lads would have been trying to race through London with a corpse on them. And the route would have been taking them through some heavily built a bench, you know, like East Cheap. There was always a chance that somebody could slow them down. I mean, sure, once they got to Lower Thames Street, they could be reinforced by the lads in the boat. But why take the risk? Far easier for them to just peg it like your arse was on fire from St. Paul's straight down to Aethelred's Heights and jump on the boat to take them back across the river. And that's what they did. Apparently, Canute jumps in, holding the body in one arm, and steers the ship with the other as they go directly across the river with all the lads rowing. I mean, can you imagine? That's the King of England and Denmark on a ship 
with loads of his boys rowing like crazy across the River Thames with all bloody hell breaking loose behind him. But he wasn't out the woods yet, mate. Nah, and as soon as he made it to Southwark, didn't have to get properly out of town. Now, here's where the team he left on the bridge came in handy, yeah? If the Londoners wanted to get to Southwark, they'd need to cross the bridge, and his boys were in place to stop him. And according to Osborne, Canute then bundled the corpse into a cart under an armed escort, sent it on to Canterbury. Yeah, course you did, mate. And while that sounds like I'm being silly, and I am being silly, please note that is basically what was said to have happened in a document called The Translation of St. Elphage. And yes, another writer at the time, a man called William of Malesbury, does say that the monk called Osborne was great at composing Latin, but was prone to not always be historically accurate. But it's a hell of a tale. And it should be noted that soon after, Canute donated relics from St. Elphage, a finger bone or two, to the Abbey of St. Peter's over on Westminster. Now, according to the sources that said this, in 1023, Canute also intervened in the politics of the Abbey of Thorny Island, making sure that his preferred candidate, Mankel Wolfnoth, was elected as the abbot there. So, what we have in 1063 is Canute removing a profitable pilgrimage route from London, but is allowing a more minor one to be set up downriver on Thorny Island, with the monks there, under his man now in charge, gaining patronage from Canute. Indeed, it is about now begins the tradition of Canute starting to lavish this monastery with gifts, and we also get the idea that Canute liked to live on Thorny Island. Having a royal residence there would allow him to keep an eye on London without having to be in London. He'd be close to his garrison in Southwark, but it'd also be on his own separate estate. Basically, tradition says it was Canute right now who began establishing the first foundations of what in time would become known as the Palace of Westminster. But that wild, outrageous story of the remains of the saint, however, hides a deeper truth. Canute's hostility towards London was more than just his willingness to rob a few relics, more than just placing a garrison next to the town. Canute had plans for London, plans we today would straight up call colonization. Because make no mistake, from around the 1020s onwards, the Danish population in London skyrocketed. And it wasn't just based on around 40 ships in Southwark. We start to see a genuine shift in the written and archaeological records of London, showing increasing numbers of Danes moving into the region. In Southwark, we see the Church of St. Olive being constructed, a Scandinavian saint for a Scandinavian parish. We start seeing runic scripts start appearing on gravestones. We have the Church of St. Magnus being built, named after Jarl Magnus of the Orkneys. There was a significant influx of Danes coming into London and their move had the backing of the king. And we see proof of the success of this in the fact that 50 years later, when William of Normandy is in charge of the whole region, the administration of London seemed to be in the hands of men whose names suggested that while they were Londoners true and high-ranking, their ancestry was Danish and Scandinavian. And in many ways, London's ability to assimilate large body of foreigners into her streets 
seem to have started here in the 1020s. Of course, this caused resentment, but in this, London wasn't entirely unique. Knut seemed to be doing the same over in Denmark as well. He was moving Englishmen there to make parts of Denmark more English, and he was moving Danes to London to make London more Danish. He was seeking to establish his own hegemony. He was seeking to establish an empire. And yet the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says nothing about this. It doesn't reflect upon these massive changes. Remains remarkably silent on these tectonic political and socio-economic impacts upon the nation and upon the city of London. And it is in these shadows of historical uncertainty that Canute was to try and create an empire and London was to find itself at the centre of this. But we'll leave that for another day. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be back next week with chapter 37. There'll be a version of this script up on Imager for anybody who wants to read along as we go forward. And thank you to everybody for your kind words, both here on the podcast and also on the scripts as they go up. If you can and you haven't yet, please do leave a five-star like or a, or a positive review of the podcast. It really does impact and help the algorithms and hopefully gets me more listeners, which is what I want to do. I'll be back next week for another chapter in the story of London. I don't want to thank you for putting up with my very bad South London accent. All right, cheers for everything. Thank you. Bye. Bye.